Welcome to the Agony Column Podcast. My name is Rick Kleppel. For this episode, my interview is with Verlin Klinkenberg, author of Timothy, or Notes of an Abject Reptile. You can find a review of this book on my website at trashotroncom agony. The interview begins with a brief reading from the book. I've also recorded an extended reading, which you can download separately. And now, my conversation with Verlin Klinkenberg. Among the humans, some are gamekeepers, some shepherds. Some are good at coppice work. Others prefer the long furrow in the company of a plow horse. Some are mowers whose scythes set the pace. The maltster differs in outlook and habits from the miller. Butcher and blacksmith are as different as whole lives in their livelihoods can make them. They know little of the shopkeeper's turn of mind or the surveyor's. Brickburner understands the mason's job but cannot lay a plumb wall himself. Sawyer cannot fill in professionally for saddle-maker or hedge-layer, nor can any of these men mend a shirt or embroider a bride's linen or keep a house as trim as a ship of the line the way the women of Selborne can. Not a human in the parish who can do for himself everything needed to live unless he lives as meagerly and cannily as a fox. To each man and woman a vocation of one kind or another, no matter how humble, all fitted together in the economy of Selborne. Even the curate, reading aloud on Sundays, directing the bowing of heads and the closing of eyes, parting living and dead, joining man and woman, sprinkling infants, visiting the sick, cheering the downhearted. Merely to be human is not nearly enough. Verlin Klinkenberg is the author of The Rural Life. His new novel is Timothy, or Notes of an Abject Reptile. Welcome to the program, Verlin. Thank you, Rick. Verlin, this is a beautiful and very complicated book, even though it reads and appears to be very simple. So let's ratchet back and talk about the origins of this book. Gilbert White's Natural History of Selborne was a book I'd run across in graduate school. It's a familiar text to anybody who's a serious bird watcher, but also to students of 18th century natural history and, and really English literary prose. But I was rummaging around four years ago in January in his journals, which I had read parts of, but never the whole thing, looking actually for information about animal husbandry in Selborne. I was getting ready to work on an essay about pigs and horses and how they had been cared for in that place, an essay that I haven't written yet. And I was so struck by the quality of that clipped, abbreviated prose in his journals, and also by the fact that he was paying such close attention to this tortoise. It occurred to me about 4 o'clock in the morning one morning that it would be fun to write a book in which the object of his attention watched the natural historian. And it was one of those ideas that just seemed so good to me at the moment that I knew instantly that I had to write the book. Are the journals available generally, or did you go to the library to research them? No, they are available. There, there is no good edition in print at the moment. They've been excerpted and chopped up, and there are a couple of older paperback editions you could find on a used bookstore website, for example. And there was a, a good... Not perfect, but a good three-volume complete edition published in England in the 80s. So I just looked until I found what I was looking for, bought them, and, and uh, basically put together a Gilbert White collection at home so I could do this research. 
Did you consult any other journals too? I I believe there's some quotes from somebody, the Molso journals. Molso, not his journals, but he was a regular correspondent. He wrote back and forth to Gilbert White all their lives. And John Molso's letters have been gathered as well. It's part of the tragedy of what's happened to literary studies in a way is that there's a wonderful career here for a young graduate student, I think, to re-edit Gilbert White's journals, to collect, recollect, and re-edit his letters, which were last gathered and edited in 1901. There, There is no really good, complete scholarly edition of any of these things out there. And if, if I were still a, a full-time academic and teaching graduate students, I would immediately encourage one to go out there and, and become the Gilbert, ex, Gilbert White expert that, I'm, that I pretend to be, but I'm not really. Tell us a little bit about how you constructed the prose, and could you talk about the prose for the novel sure. and the prose that you encountered in Gilbert White's journals? There, there are two things that I did to develop this prose. One was do a version of what I had done as I was a graduate student in English literature to teach myself how to write general nonfiction. I'd been taught to write as an academic, elaborate, complex, overly constructed, and airless sentences, you know, academic prose. And in, a, in order to write for a general audience, in order to write in a way that had any art to it at all, I had to relearn the act of writing. And the way to do that for me was to take my sentences and begin breaking them apart and weeding out what was extraneous, weeding out the connections that were no longer necessary in a certain point, until I got back to a prose that's very much like what I write normally. Well, in the case of this book, I was in Italy at a writer's retreat for a month, just beginning to work on the problem of how to build Timothy's voice. And I did the same thing all over again. I wrote what I kind of wanted her to be saying, and of course it sounded like me, and then I started pulling it apart, breaking it into pieces, until I got to the 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 elements of the prose that were completely sensible by themselves, but weren't complete syntactically. They were fragments. And what I discovered as I was doing this was actually I was building the prose downward to a point where it resembled the, the brief cryptic annotations that Gilbert White would make in his journals. So in a certain sense, the language of, of this book has a very close analog in Gilbert White's journals. It's meant to capture some of those same rhythms, same of that, some of that same very subtle poetry that he writes down every day as he pays attention to the world around him. But I think the effect of it for a reader is so much prose that we read is overdetermined. It's not, it doesn't trust the reader. It says, I don't trust you, and therefore I'm going to over-explain. I'm going to over-connect. I'm going to over-elaborate. And this is a prose that deeply trusts the reader in the sense that the reader is in the position of completing the syntax of every fragment. It's amazing, if you think about the English language, how how much you can strip away the, the mechanisms of sense and still have the reader get the whole meaning by filling in. This may explain why it seems like a book that anybody could read. It's it's a timeless and ageless book. So I'm wondering, did you think, you, you trusted the readers, but what kind of readers did you foresee for this book? Well, I, you never know what to foresee, really. <laughs> um, what I foresaw was myself as a reader. I mean, in a certain sense, my job is to, is any writer's job is to engage himself or herself at at the highest level of interest, to be as absorbed in the project as you can be. And it's not that I expect all readers to be like me or that 
to, to assume that I'm my own ideal reader. It's just that your own interest is so commanding as you're working on a book. It's so it's so demanding. But I think the best way to answer who the readers are is to think about what happened to Gulliver's Travels, for example. Now, here's a book that came out in the 18th century. At the time, it was a highly topical satire meant completely for an adult audience um, and for an adult audience that had profound awareness of the political situation and social situation that the book was written to to embrace and to and to to criticize and over the years that book has gained an audience that's broader and wider and younger and certainly less educated about the context in which it was written but which reads the book for its for its pleasure for its humor for its ironic version of it's ironic take on on how humans live. I, I hope that this book will have the same sort of function. That's one of the reasons I, I created a glossary for it. I want it to be a self-contained thing so that you don't have to be a specialist in 18th century agricultural knowledge in order to pick it up and, and figure out what Sanfoin is. It's enough that I I was able to figure that out for the reader. You had a lot of fun with that glossary. Tell us a little bit about writing it. It's It seems a beautiful piece in itself. It, it doesn't seem to be the... This is what it means. Mm-hmm. It, it's a, a deep part of the narrative. Well, it's it's actually a, a profound. I mean, the whole book is an homage to Gilbert White, of course. But the the glossary is a way for me to say to the reader, um, I know you've just. I, I hope you've just loved this book on its own terms, and that you think of me as its author. But I want you to see how deep the sources really are. I want you to see how how profound Gilbert White's glimpse of the world around him really was. It's a way of it's a way if you think about what happens, you move from my prose, which has its sort of reflection of Gilbert White's prose in the book itself, to these moments where Gilbert suddenly you hear Gilbert White in his letters and in the natural history of Selborne in the glossary. So you begin to you begin to hear Gilbert White's other voices emerging in that glossary. But it's also um, uh, a way, really, of—I mean, I've always tried to teach my writing students that their job is not merely to write, but to be curators of the language around them. And by that, I mean that we have the entire resources of the English language at our disposal. And to assume that we have to cater to the vocabulary that the readers already possess— is to go on shrinking and narrowing and limiting our vocabulary over time. My goal is always to, in a way that's intelligible, not merely arcane, but functional, to keep reopening the language, keep reabsorbing words that that have a value and a a use to them. And this glossary is, I mean, certainly there are words we are not going to be using much uh, again, but there are words that... It's very important for us to to recognize their 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 place in Gilbert White's world. The other issue with the glossary, of course, is that you know we're an, a nation of American readers and American bird watchers, and most of these English birds are simply, frankly, unfamiliar to us. So it's a way of giving providing analogies. That's one thing I did want to talk to you about is mm-hmm. the English location. How much time did you spend in Selborne? Not long, about three days, um, just traipsing around. Gilbert White's house is, is now a museum. Oddly, it's a museum both for him and for the Ant- Antarctic explorer Titus Oates, which is something I, you know, a, a man who never left home and a man who died in Antarctica. Um, it's it's quite a combination. But the topography, the topography hasn't changed much. I spent a lot of time, you know, walking up and down the hangar of the beach hill behind his house. But 
in an odd way, there's a there's a sense in which readers kind of want to literalize how a writer works. I've had I've actually had people say to me, now when you were imagining being Timothy, did you lie down in the grass and try to get a feel for what it was like to be that tall? And there's a funny quality to that kind of question because it's the act of imagination that matters. And what I found when I went to Selborne was that I already had been to Selborne. I went there for the first time, and in fact, I knew it so well from Gilbert White's journals and from the natural history of Selborne that it was like coming back to a place that I'd already been many times. And it, the, the curious part about it is that the, the Selborne that I knew was the 18th century one. So it was a surprise to come to the 20th century one or 21st century one not so much in terms of the fact that there were cars on the streets, because really the village hasn't changed that much, but because the patterns of land use have changed. Um, it's no longer agricultural in, in even remotely the same way. You talked about imagination, and this book is a really wonderful feat of the imagination on a, a, just a myriad of levels. Let's talk about the giving an animal a voice level. There's a bit of Animal Farm in this, <laughs> just well, a little bit. Except that Animal Farm is is an inexact analogy because in Animal Farm, Orwell has no real interest in. He, Orwell has only an interest in using the most obvious animal characteristics as ways of completing the allegory of human behavior. And the difference here is that. Um, it's not that I'm trying to, to create the, the thought patterns or language patterns or, or life patterns of a tourist, but I'm also certainly not trying to make her be like a human being in any real sense, if I can say it that way. Yeah, I... It seems to me you discover mm -hmm. the, the analogies within the real landscape mm -hmm. that as opposed to using the landscape to create the analogies. Mm -hmm. Well, it's that's exactly right. Um, if you think of, I guess that's a, that's a very good way of saying it, because on the one hand, you have Gilbert White's very human way of looking at the landscape around him, which puts things into categories, systematizes them in ways that m have meaning to him as a religious man, as a scientific man, and as a as a consumer of his own garden and the wild world around him, in a sense. Timothy's take on all of that is very different. Um, she re-reads the world in a certain sense. Um, she reads it in terms of the coherence of the lives of the animals uh, themselves, the, the, the independence of their lives, the separateness of their lives, the way they go about their business, the way, for example, I mean, there's a passage in the book where I talk about the fact, or Timothy talks about the fact that um, humans love to think of the separateness of the creation, that the world that they live in was made for them, and the village of Selborne is, is a human's construction. But in fact, birds nest in the eaves, they nest in the thatch, they inhabit the church tower, they live in the village as as fully and completely as humans do. And I started to think a lot about that, that overlap in that 18th century world, how different it would be from us. I mean, if you live in a small town, even a city, there's a lot of life in, not a lot of natural life in those in those places, but not at all like the 18th century. You would have felt this complete 
convergence of these human lives and these animal lives. And Timothy is willing to see that convergence for what it is, whereas Gilbert White always wants to keep it pulled apart, keep it separate somehow. Tell us a little bit about the imaginative feat that you did just as a writer in terms of the form of this book, because it's neither fish nor fowl, mm-hmm. and it's not reptilian either. Yeah. Tell, it, as you wrote it, did you think, this is a novel, this is a, a biography, or did it just come, it grow around the kernel of Timothy's vision? I don't, I don't really believe in genre. That's the that's, that's the answer to that question. I, I've often spent, I mean, I've spent, in to, my 20 years of teaching writing, I try to explain to my students that there really is no meaningful difference between fiction and nonfiction. You're still using any translation of real events into language is already a fictional act in, in some important sense. And as long as you're aware of that, and it doesn't, I'm not, I'm not discrediting the value of factual research and all of this sort of stuff. I mean, I do work as a journalist after all. Um, but what I'm saying is that linguistic tools are linguistic tools, no matter what genre you apply them to. In fact, I thought of this book as a work of scholarship, um, first and foremost, and that was that was all I ever. That was the farthest my my generic thinking ever went. For me, it was just a matter of trying to understand as deeply and empathetically as I could what that world was like, what it meant to have these very different viewpoints, reptilian and human, in that world, and to and to construct it in a way that is as accurate and and true to the records that we have as I could. There, There is a, a, a lot of very beautiful truth in this, both in Timothy's point of view and just in the amazing amount of facts mm-hmm. that, that you offer us. One thing I wanted to, to comment about was that though you offer a glossary, it's really almost not necessary mm-hmm. because Timothy seems to understand the things around him so well that the reader intuitively and intrinsically also understands that. Well, it, I think you're right. Um, I mean, I've talked to lots of people who've, who've read through it only to discover there's a glossary, like in the last 10 pages. I, I have, I guess, two feelings about it. It's, it's a book that really needs to be read twice, at least. Once is going through and paging back to the glossary and getting a feel for it. The other is reading it after you've absorbed all of that. I, I think you're right in the sense that there's... I try to use the words that do belong to that glossary, the, the special words, in a way that elucidates their meaning as it moves. But also, to talk about the glossary too much is to overemphasize the the sort of divergence of this book from what we already know. In fact, Timothy is very much absorbed with what we already know. She's She's reflecting on the character of human knowledge of the world around her, the state of human knowledge, and comparing it to her own. And to that extent, I think you're right. She's, it, it's intuitively accessible to a reader. Let's talk a little bit about the speed of life, because the speed of life in, is, a, is an important part of this novel, the time scale, the reptilian time scale, the, the m- both at a micro level mm-hmm. and at a macro level, much mm-hmm. larger level. So tell me a little bit about how you... Describe that to yourself. When you wrote this, did did you map it out on a time scale? Did you was no. it just completely organic creation? Yeah, it's uh, again, it's 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 it goes back to how I think about writing and and what I try to to teach my students 
I'm, I'm a great believer in, uh, I mean, for certain kinds of work, outlining is very important. Knowing where you're going is very important. But for almost any kind of serious imaginative work, it's important not to know where you're going. It's important to have, to feel your way as you go. And that's, that's very much how I work. I often talk about, with my students, about the fact that one of the most productive things that can happen to you as a writer is to feel like you've painted yourself into a corner and you just don't know where to go next because... I mean, a lot of people get to that point and they go, oh, my God, I have writer's block. Well, I don't believe in writer's block. That's just thinker's block. They've stopped thinking. That's all. When you get to that point where you don't know where to go next, that means you can only go someplace next once some imaginative leap has occurred. You have to go someplace you didn't know you were going to go. So when I get to those moments, and this book is full of them, it gives me an opportunity to, to discover something new, to find something new. So for, for me, writing this book was not a matter of mapping it out and then creating it. It was a matter of discovery all the way through. I love this idea of the imaginative leaps. <clears throat> and I, I love this book as a work of imaginative fiction. Could you talk a little bit about, tell us some of your thoughts about imaginative fiction. Was there any fiction that informed this um, book I'm or nonfiction? To... Well, I mean, uh, the way for me to answer that is that when you're, when you're working on a book, or at least when I'm working on a book, the book is built out of everything you know about the world that you live in and about yourself. It, all the raw materials that surround you in your entire life are what you draw from for a book like this. And I think that's true for most serious novelists or serious nonfiction writers who, ha who really are working in, in the imagination. You, you spend so much time noticing and absorbing and doing research, and suddenly it all, there are no longer any distinctions in your life. There's not work and play. There's not you know, leisure and, and then serious study. It all becomes folded together. And you know, at, at our place, it's fairly easy. And th this book fits in, into it because since this is a book about an animal's eye view of the world, I go out the door and there are the chickens and the ducks and the geese and the pigs and the horses on our farm. And uh, to a certain extent, all of the things that surround me there play back into this. But really, people... Um, I, imagination is a word that's 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 complicated because it has a long history and a very com complex history. And people get it's it's a simple word, a familiar word, but it's also <clears throat> a troublingly large word. And, and I often find that people get stymied by it because all it really means is thinking. All it re really means is turning yourself loose to think the thoughts and follow them out in your head and go where they want to go and experiment with them and play with them and and be open to the possibilities that your thinking creates in you. This is also, of course, a, a beautiful piece of nature writing uh, about a number of variety of aspects of nature. It's what struck me at first of course, was the, the, the bird-watching aspect. So, so tell us a little bit about your history as a bird-watcher and, and where this, this work fits into that. Well, it, it fits into it in a, in a couple of different ways. First of all, I, I, did you know that in England a bird-watcher is called a twitcher? 
No, I didn't. I didn't either. <laughs> I, mean, I was, I was talking to my. The, this book is coming out in England in October, and I was talking to one of the editors in London, and she said, "We're we're going to send the book out to Twitchers to look at before long." And and I and I wrote to her and I said, "Do you mean somebody who's going to go through the book and look for Americanisms, and then sort of put them into British, you know, English, so that it will." make more sense to the English audience. And she said, no, a Twitcher is a bird watcher. I had no idea. Um, well, White is extremely important uh, in the history of bird watching because he's really the first figure in, uh, in England to begin taking um, the study of ornithology out of Latin, out of the university, out of the scientific context, even though he's a scientific bird watcher, and putting it in the context of the local parish. What this book says, what the human, what the, what the natural history of Selborne says is that if you go out and study the behavior of the birds and animals and insects in your parish, in your garden, you will know something about the way the world of nature functions, something important, something that brings meaning to science and actually brings new scientific information to the fore. So He's a he's a seminal figure in. I mean, one of the reasons the English have loved him so much over the two hundred years is because he ratifies what they are doing as as bird watchers, going out in the backyard, keeping account of the birds that fly by, keeping a list of species, listening for the first important songs of the spring, um, all of those sorts of things. Those are that's the pattern of his life, and he gives it a scientific meaning, but he's not. Uh, at all averse, although he doesn't say much about it, he's not averse to the emotional meaning of it, of it too. He doesn't, he's not, White is not a particularly emotional man in his prose or in his journals, but he's so attentive to when the first nightingale is heard, to when the swifts depart on their migrations, that you know that it has real emotional significance for him. Was he the first, uh, could you say, is he the first amateur Birdwatcher is is that where the no, bird watching began before him? Or? No, not not the first amateur. I mean, I'm, uh, England must have been filled with amateur bird watchers, but he's the first one t- to have written extensively and um, how can I say this? To to have written extensively and locally and in English and in a, f- a language of familiar events. Um, again using the language that Linnaeus and had given him, for example, the binomial description of a species, uh, using the... I mean, most of his reference works are, are Latin uh, treatises on... Uh, are treatises on birdwatching in Latin, written by his scientific colleagues uh, as much as a century before. But um, as much as he loves that work and as much as he uses it, his goal... And I think this may come partly from his role as an Anglican preacher, an Anglican clergyman in that parish. His role is to speak directly in a language that his parishioners will understand. It's also kind of a family enterprise. His brother, Benjamin White, was a publisher in in London. Benjamin White published the first edition of of, uh, The Natural History of Selborne. His other brother, John White, was a, a clergyman who was stationed in Gibraltar for a while and began a work called Fauna Calpensis, which was meant to be a natural history of the birds and and natural life of the Gibraltar region. But you can tell by the name, Fauna Calpensis, that it was going to be it was going to be in English, but he couldn't quite get away from that that more academic handling of it. And 
the glory of White's work is that he's able to, to merge those worlds, to take the best of that academic observation, that scientific observation, and the best of, of what um, everyone around him knows about the world and, and mix the two together. This book also has quite a, uh, an attraction to the gardening world, mm-hmm. which is very important in England as, as well as here. Tell us a little bit about how you approach this book as a gardener. Well, it's, it's fascinating to, to think about Gilbert White's garden because you begin to realize that the history of gardening as we know it, for example, in the 18th century in England is very much a, a history of monumental gardens, big, important gardens, usually owned by very rich men and women. We think about it, the history of gardening in, in the 18th century as a history of garden design on a kind of macro scale. But Gilbert White was an extremely important gardener in the sense that he was constantly in touch with a man like Philip Miller, who was the head of the Chelsea Physic Garden, but also the author of a book called Miller's Gardening Dictionary, which was probably the most important gardening book, a book for gardeners, published in the 18th century. Gilbert White, his early his early journals in the 1750s and early 1760s show a man devoted to making this garden function in a way that's aesthetic, that's productive, because he has to live off the resources of the garden, but also becomes uh, to create a garden that, that provides a natural environment for the, the creatures around him. It's, he doesn't write about that consciously uh, or overtly, but there's such intricacy, there's so many layers, so many f- folds to the kind of gardens that he's making. There are, for example, maple walks out in the meadow. There is the meadow itself. There is a thing called Baker's Hill. It's a little rise, about an acre in extent, that has melon gardens on it. He grows lots of cantaloupe and um, he grows lots of cucumbers as well. He's in the garden from the very moment he can get in the garden all through the fall. And there's a there's an experimental quality to it, an investigative quality to it. He breeds his own uh, polyanths. He, he crosses hyacinths. He builds what is one of the first private um, small-scale ha-has, which is a sunken fence. Um, tell, in tell, tell us a little bit more about the ha-ha. Okay, the ha-ha, yeah, it's one of those phrases that people are always puzzled by. But if you were standing in Gilbert White's back parlor looking out on his garden and then on onto the meadow beyond and then beyond that the hangar which is this beach hill you wouldn't see a break there would be you there'd be no visible fence but if you reverse the perspective if you were standing out by the hangar looking towards Gilbert White's house you'd see a brick wall that was about six feet high and it's if you walked out Gilbert White's back walk you would come to the edge of the ha and you'd see it was a six-foot precipice that just fell straight down, faced with brick, and then off went the meadow from there, which means that sheep could wander all the way up to the edge of the, of the ha-ha, but they couldn't get up over the ha-ha, so they're protected from getting into his garden. It's basically, from one perspective, invisible fencing. And it's, you know, they've, they've begun working on a historical reconstruction of White's garden, so far, I, th- I mean, when I was there in 2002 in Selborne, they'd done a lot of work on identifying what he had planted, but the actual pattern of the planting, where things were laid out, um, wasn't very clear yet. As you wrote this book, 
and immersed yourself in Gilbert White's world and in Timothy's voice. How did your experience of your own rural surroundings change? How was that affected? Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, I think the answer to that is um, I guess the way to say it would be it became clear to me how wild the place I live in really is. Um, and we, have, we have just a small five-acre place. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to call it a farm because that has so many other meanings, but it's a couple of, couple of acres of pasture and then sugar maples and a lot of rock outcropping. And then beyond that, beech and hickory forest, um, a lot of hemlock as well. And there's a sense in which it feels, after immersing yourself in 18th century England, it feels like we're living on the edge of the frontier in some sense, which is hard to believe. But it really it really does feel that way. There's a, a kind of wildness and intrusiveness. And, and I've, I've written about it before in the, in the rural life and other places. One of the things, if you garden where we're where I garden, and probably here in California too, you feel like you're always beating back the wild. You're always trying to reinforce the boundary between you and what you're trying to do and what all of nature is trying to do. And I'm sure that was going on in Gilbert White's world too, but I think that because the pattern of land use was so much more intricate and so much more closely and immediately tied to the economic necessities of the parish, the land looked very different. Um, an example I often like to give is one I mentioned in the book that you you go to England now to Selborne and there are two two patterns for the land. One is manicured garden, lawn, that sort of stuff, and the other is wildness. Um, maybe some pasture in between, and that's about it. But in Gilbert White's day, every inch of that parish would have been used in some way. Women and old laborers would gather rushes from the streamside and strip them and soak them in bacon grease, and that was the light they used. They would light that and work as a candle. If if rooks, crow-like birds up in the trees, began to tear apart each other's nests, as they often did, the poor of the parish would walk up into the hillside and gather the sticks that fell from the nests for kindling. There's a sense of economic involvement in the immediate locale that's detailed and and terrifically intricate and very complex and essential that we just don't have. I mean, I don't live in an economic landscape in, in a certain sense. Most people who live in the countryside don't live in an economic landscape in that way. Tell us a little bit about um, some of the layers of knowing in this book. As you read this book, you have Timothy's perspective. You have Tim, what Timothy hears from White, what White knows, and also the reader brings to it what we know now. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how you created that and how you experienced it as you wrote it. Well, the first question was, what what is Timothy capable of knowing, and how do I think about that? And I have a, a friend in New York who happens to be a lawyer who came up to me after reading the book. He said, you know, I love the book, but I just have a little trouble understanding how Timothy knows what she knows. And all I could say was the conclusion that I'd come to early on. If you believe that the tortoise is talking to you, you've already 
jumped the biggest hurdle. Everything else is immaterial. And the fact is, wouldn't it be better to learn from a wise and aged tortoise who knows everything than from one who had an artificially constructed awareness diminished according to my human prejudices about how reptiles must think? Why not give her the full range of uh, human and beyond human knowing? But um, the... The one of the ways I would I would talk about the layers of knowing is again in terms of the place where we live. Um, there, Timothy tries to be do justice to her own observations of the world. To Gilbert White's as well, and Gilbert White in turn tries to do justice to I th- to the, the limits of his ability to um, do justice to the perceptions of the the animals that he is surrounded by. It's not that he tries to think in their thoughts, anything like that. It's just that he is aware that they have a kind of integrity and, and coherence to themselves. Now, the way I think about that in terms of where we live is that the best example is a, is a wonderful story about we had two turkeys a, a few winters ago. We didn't eat them. One of them jumped the fence and was captured by a fox, and the other, her mate, jumped the fence and ran off with the wild females. Um, but before they did... I was out with the turkeys one day, uh, all the poultry, and the, the two turkeys were looking up in the sky, and they were making these kind of very strange electrical noises that turkeys make. And I didn't quite understand what was going on, and I looked and looked and looked and looked, and finally, almost out of my sight, I could see a red-tailed hawk circling over, and that was what they were watching. Their senses were so acute that they were aware of this bird up in the sky as an immediate threat to their welfare, and I could barely even see it. Every time I go outdoors among our animals, I, I am, am, in some sense, dealing with the way their sensory worlds do not overlap with my own. They, they extend my own. And by paying attention to those things, you, you, I mean, one of the great joys of living the way we do on our, on our little place is that everything around us reminds us of the boundaries of our own perception and shows us that certain creatures... Um, extend that perception in ways that we can barely even imagine. And it's that perceptual extension that, that feeds into this book. It's not it's not opened up very much. It remains a kind of subliminal characteristic all the way through. But that's where a lot of it comes from. Tell us a little bit about this as a work in the, in the genre, I guess, of Thoreau, the transcendentalist, because this is, really speaks deeply to our connection of nature connection of nature within itself and the vibrations we make in the spider web of nature as we stalk across mm-hmm. it. Well, it's... Um, I'm Someday somebody will give a much better answer to that than I will, I hope. But it's... You know, people have, have asked me about the connection between the two, assuming that Thoreau must be the, the sort of natural other balance point here. And I suppose that the Thoreau that this book acknowledges or responds to most immediately, although it was never a conscious part of my thinking about this book, would be the Thoreau of the journals. the Not not the Thoreau of a week on the Concord and Merrimack or even of Walden, but the man who kept detailed journals for almost his entire life, uh, watching carefully the world around him, taking notes on his own intellectual progress, on on the the swelling and, and subsiding of the seasons around him, that committed observer 
Um, that's the, the real connection because the, the analogy between, in a very important way, it's, it, it, it's essential to acknowledge the differences between White and Thoreau, for example. I mean, White is, a, is an Anglican clergyman, very comfortable with the nature of the, uh, the Anglican faith. Um, his, his idea about, he, he's pulled apart by the, the world he watches. On the one hand, he wants to think scientifically, think systematically. He is a committed Linnaean. He's deeply devoted to advancing um, the understanding of how nature works. And yet he wants to take the whole ball of nature and fold it into religious understanding. That's very much his premise. And that's, in a certain sense, for Thoreau, it works the other way around. He wants to take religion and view it as a kind of human construct, a, a, a pieced together thing, and fold it into the whole of nature, um, which is a, an interesting inversion of White's, of White's, White's goal. The uh, the thing about Thoreau though is that he is uh, he's less accessible in some curious ways to modern readers I think than even Gilbert White is because there's a kind of almost baroque nineteenth century quality to a lot of his prose. If you go through, I mean, I, I've I sort of grew up on Thoreau because I, when I was a graduate student at Princeton, I worked in the Thoreau edition, which was a an edition now at Santa Barbara committed to. Uh, identifying the authoritative texts of his works and, and publishing them in a scholarly edition. And if you go through Walden and read it carefully, you'll realize that there are those sentences we remember most, the parts of that book we remember most, are the the parts where, surprisingly, Thoreau seems to be writing in almost 21st century prose, clean and pure and short and simple and direct. But there's a lot of prose that's not like that. That works in a very different direction. Um, so when it comes to the the actual trans transcendental analogies, I'm not sure how how that will sort itself out if there's a real connection or not. Thoreau is, um, as I say, the natural referent in some ways, but to me he's a, a touchstone for other kinds of things that are much more that belong to such a different world from White that I don't they don't really connect to me in in some sense. One of the aspects of this book that I thought was really beautifully done was the way you evoke the details of the climate and the, and the world that surrounds Timothy at a level so that, though you never say it, as I was reading this, I'm thinking, boy, one degree temperature change matters a lot to Timothy. It mm -hmm. matters a lot to every single little tiny animal, mm -hmm. bird, plant that you describe. So there's a, a, an overwhelming awareness of our environment and, and what the impact that we're having on it, not just based on what white does and right. tilling the soil, but something that makes us think about the 21st century. Well, and Timothy is, is perfectly suited to be a, an explainer of that because if you think about how a tortoise's system works, it's it's completely geothermal in a certain sense. She, I mean, one of the one of the one of the most important perceptions I had, uh, starting off this book, uh, was the the awareness that because Timothy is cold blooded, when she digs into the earth, the earth feels warm to her. She can feel it sustaining her. Um, which is not something that we can feel. Our our body temperature at 98 degrees, the earth always feels cold to us. 
But since her her temperature, body temperature fluctuates with the world around her, for her that the Earth is this this giant warm globe that sort of sustains her uh, through these bitter winters. And there's actually a footnote in um, in uh, the Natural History of Selborne in which White talks about uh, examples of the heat sort of rising up out of the earth. But that that awareness of um, kind of the delicacy of your relation to the world around you, the sensitivity of it, is embedded in this book all the way around. And, and in, a, in a certain sense, because Gilbert White is human, he's a fairly crude observer of that. For him, temperature is temperature, and if, if it's really Siberian out and there's snow piled everywhere, that's pretty interesting. It's very extreme. But the fact is, if you look at Timothy's life, here she is, a Mediterranean tortoise, basking you know, on the shores of the Mediterranean at some time in 1740. She's snatched away. No one knows how. Brought to England. No one knows why. And suddenly finds herself dumped into this climate that was much colder in the 1780s than it is in England now. And her entire hormonal system, her reproductive system, her, all her biological engines have got to recalibrate themselves in terms of this radically shifted um, temperature pattern around her. And, in fact, one of the reasons that no one ever knew she was female was because she never laid an egg. One of the reasons she never laid an egg was because her hormonal systems had been so completely thrown askew by the radical shift in her hibernation patterns She's a, a perfect interpreter of of how the world around her feels and shifts. And in a way, your analogy with the 21st century is exactly right because the crisis in sort um, the herpetological crisis, the demise of frog populations, of tortoises, of reptiles, which are extremely at risk all around the globe is based on their sensitivity to environmental change, whether it's pollutants, whether it's changes in temperature, all of those sort of things. But if you, if you, begin, to, you begin to examine the fate of, um, say, the whole concourse of frog species across the globe, what we're witnessing right now is a colossal tragedy based on the permeability of their skin, their susceptibility of their, of their lives to um, minute changes around them. The same thing is happening with tortoises as well. They are keenly sensitive um, registrants of, of change. We've been speaking with Verlin Klinkenberg. His new book is Timothy, or Notes of an Abject Reptile. Thank you very much for speaking with me, Verlin. Absolutely. My pleasure. I'm Rick Kleffel, and you've been listening to my interview with Verlin Klinkenberg, author of Timothy, or Notes of an Abject Reptile. You can find a review of the book and over 600 others on my website at trashotroncom agony, as well as daily book news and commentary. Thank you for listening to The Agony Column.